scripture reading this morning will be at uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and he came to the gate of the city, and behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and for, and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah had said, and she and, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. One afternoon, a father asked his son, what did you learn at school today? And his son's reply was, apparently not enough because I have to go back tomorrow. <laughs> I, I don't know if you felt this way about school, but I could not wait to get out of school. I, particularly when I was in college, I, I could not wait to get out of college and to start a career. But the reality is that, that even though we might complete our I'm not on? The green light says I am. <laughs> Thank you, Mingu. I apologize. I do have green. I t- All right, is it any better? You know what that means? We have to start over. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So think about education. You may complete your academic training, uh, your formal academic training, but then you might choose to go back and get some advanced education to further career opportunities. Uh, It might be required of your particular field of study to have a certain level of degree. Some of you, to maintain your license or to maintain your credentials, may have to do some sort of, uh, go to a certain number of seminars, conferences, or meetings of some sort. All of that is called continuing education. And for many of us, continuing education is just a fact of life. Last week we saw that after Elijah took a stand before Ahab and Jezebel, God sent him to the wilderness to teach him some spiritual lessons in order to protect him from those evil rulers and to prepare him for the ministry that he was going to be engaged in in the coming years. 
And while Elijah was in the wilderness, he was fed by birds and he drank out of a brook. But eventually that brook dried up, and that meant it was time for Elijah to move on. But God didn't send Elijah to continue his public ministry. God instead sent Elijah to continue his education. And the way that God did this is by putting Elijah through a series of tests. Tests that he often puts you and I through as well. And this morning what I want to do is identify the tests that God ordered for Elijah so that you and I might be able to recognize when we're facing such tests in the future. And there are four that I notice in the text for today, the text of 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. And the first test I notice is the courage test. Now notice this, if you turn to our text today, in 1 Kings chapter 17, look at verse 8 and, the, and verse 9, you'll see that God says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now, let's unpack that for just a moment. Elijah's instructed to go to a particular place, a town called Zarephath in a region called Sidon. It may not be obvious to you and I, but this is a significant order. Elijah's been at the, the brook Cherith. That's over on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Zarephath is located on the west coast of Palestine, along the, near the Mediterranean Sea, at least a hundred miles from where Cherith would have been. That means that God's call for Elijah to relocate to Zarephath required him to travel across the land. And I want you to think about that land for a moment. One thing we know about that land is it was unproductive. We're in the middle of a drought. There's nothing growing out there. There's not food out there for him to readily access. And think about the fact that his brook just dried up. Do you think he's going to find a bunch of brooks filled with water on the way? So it's unproductive land, but more importantly, it's unsafe land. He's a wanted man. The king and queen of Israel have put a bounty on his head. And now he's got to travel across land when there's people looking for him. So this is a test of courage. Elijah is being tested by God to see whether or not he's going to be willing to move on when God gives him the order. And on top of that, we're told that Elijah's ultimate destination is this town called Zarephath, located in a territory called Sidon. Do you know who the king of the Sidonians is at this time? His name was Ethbaal. And he's mentioned one time in the Bible. One time. That's in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 31. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 31, here's what you'll read. Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. The king of the Sidonians is the father of Jezebel, the father-in-law 
of Ahab. And Josephus tells us two things about Ethbaal. He tells us first that Ethbaal assassinated his predecessor. Ethbaal became king of the Sidonians by killing the guy that preceded him. You know what that tells us about Ethbaal? That he's willing to do whatever it takes to get his way. The second thing Josephus tells us about Ethbaal is that he was a priest. A priest of the goddess that was Baal's consort. So he's fervent about his religion. He's fervent about Baal. He cares very deeply about his religion. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to get his way. So God is sending Elijah not just through this unsafe and unproductive land, but he's sending him to the heart of the enemy. He's relocating him into territory that's at the center of the worship of Baal and that is governed by someone who is closely connected to the royal family that's trying to kill him. So not only is the trip a test of Elijah's courage, the destination is as well. And I want you to think for a moment. Have you ever faced a courage test? Have you ever been instructed by God to do something that you were either afraid to do or that you were highly uncomfortable doing? You know, maybe you faced the courage test when you realized that God wanted you to forgive someone that you've been holding a grudge against. And doing so was going to require you to swallow a lot of pride. Maybe you faced the courage test when you realized that God expected you to share the gospel with a co-worker, with a friend, with a peer at school, with a neighbor, or even a complete stranger. And doing so was going to require you to step outside your comfort zone. Maybe you faced the courage test when you were compelled to go on a mission trip, or you were compelled to be extraordinarily generous in benevolence. And doing either of those things was going to require you to make a tremendous sacrifice. You see, God does order the courage test. It may take a variety of forms, but every once in a while, God orders the courage test. Because this test reveals whether or not we trust Him, whether or not we believe His promise to be with us, and whether or not we're willing to do whatever He asks of us regardless of how uncomfortable we are with his requirements. One of the very last things Moses said to the Israelites before his death is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6. And it gets repeated multiple times throughout Scripture. Here's what Moses said. He said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. We can pass the courage test because God's on our side. Because God's with us and God will not forsake us. If you believe that, you'll never fail the courage test. But you will face it. 
And not only will you face the courage test, but you will also face the humility test. The humility test. This is the second test I believe God ordered for Elijah. Because if you notice, back in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 9, after instructing Elijah to go to Zarephath, God explained, Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Usually widows were the poorest of all citizens during this time period. It would have made complete sense for God to tell Elijah, go take care of a widow during this drought. But God ordered Elijah to go be taken care of by a widow. That's a really humbling assignment for a man who had stood before a king not long before. And as one author pointed out, sometimes God uses humbling tasks to prepare us for higher tasks. And many of God's great servants had to endure a humility test before they received their big assignment. Joseph went from being his father's favorite son and Potiphar's loyal employee to being a humble prisoner before he became the second most powerful individual in Egypt. Moses went from being a member of the Egyptian royal family to being a humble shepherd before he became the leader of God's people. David went from being the most celebrated military hero in Israel's history to being a humble fugitive fleeing from King Saul before God gave him the throne. Saul, who later became Paul, went from being the rising star of the Pharisees to being a spiritual outcast that no one wanted to associate with before he became the church's greatest evangelist. See, the Bible clearly teaches in passages like James chapter 4 and verse 10 and Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 that in order to be exalted by God, we must first learn to humble ourselves. And that reminds me of a story I heard about Gandhi. Now, I'm not using Gandhi in a sermon illustration because I agree with his religious beliefs. I'm using this story because in it, Gandhi makes a very biblical point. According to the story I heard, a young man who had just received a Ph.D. in economics from the London School of Economics came to stay at Gandhi's monastery. What he didn't know is that everybody who came to that monastery had to take on a job to stay there. And he was given the job of cleaning the toilets. One day, he was so tired of that, that demeaning task that he went to Gandhi and complained and he told Gandhi about his education. He said, I hold a doctorate. I'm capable of doing great things. Why do you waste my time and my talent cleaning toilets? And Gandhi replied, I know of your capacity to do great things, but I have yet to discover your capacity to do little things. And I believe that's why God orders the humility test. Because in order for God to exalt us, we must first learn to humble ourselves. 
God wants to find out from time to time. He wants to discover whether or not we're willing to do little things. Because if you're too big to do something small, as one preacher said, then you're too small to do something big. That's the humility test. And that's a test that you and I may face. In addition to that, Elijah had to face, and we often have to face, the difficulty test. Look what happens when Elijah arrives in Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. He arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah's trip to Zarephath was a hard pill to swallow to begin with. Because it required him to courageously enter enemy territory, and it required him to humbly allow a widow to take care of him. Now he finds out that this widow doesn't even have the resources to care for him during this drought. Because she doesn't even have the resources to take care of herself and her son. If I'm Elijah, then after this initial conversation with the widow, I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? I'm, I'm trying to be obedient here. I'm trying to do what you told me to do. I'm going where you have told me to go. But every time I go and do, I encounter a new obstacle. And this is just getting too difficult. Has God ever ordered the difficulty test for you? Have you ever been so excited about an opportunity that you've received? An opportunity that God's blessed you with, and then once you seize that opportunity, you discover that it's a little more complicated than you expected because it has its own fair share of obstacles, challenges, and difficulties that you couldn't foresee. Have you ever encountered the difficulty test? I've mentioned before that I've known since eighth grade that I wanted to go into ministry. It was in my eighth grade year that I first realized that I was not going to make it an MBA, so I decided I needed to change my dream. I had a fantastic youth minister that I dearly loved, and I thought, well, hey, he gets to hang out with me all the time, and I'm really cool, so why don't I do that? So I, I, I knew since eighth grade I was going to go into ministry. I went to school to receive my education in Bible and religion. And after graduating, I entered full-time ministry on February 1st, 2004 as the youth and family minister down in Pensacola. But I had no idea what all I would have to endure during my first year of ministry. One week after I was officially hired by that congregation and two weeks before I would begin working there, a dearly beloved elder's wife passed away unexpectedly from a 
brain aneurysm. And her passing shook that congregation deeply. So when I arrived in Pensacola, that congregation was still grieving the loss of that elder's wife. And when I attended my first elders meeting as an employee of that congregation, I was witnessing an elder resign. That was in February of 2004. In May 2004, the Sunday before our, mine and Sarah's wedding, we had a potluck at the church building, and a family left that potluck and was headed home. A 16-year-old boy in my youth group was driving the car. His mother was in the passenger seat, and his fifth-grade son, uh, son, his fifth-grade brother, was in the back seat. They made a left-hand turn in front of a car, and that car didn't slow down. Rammed into them full speed, hitting the back passenger side where the fifth-grade boy was sitting. They weren't far from the church building. They were able to, somebody was able to phone the church building, and I was still there, and a group of us met them at the hospital. The 16-year-old boy was fine. I met him back as he was uh, being treated. The mother was hospitalized with some injuries. The son, who was in fifth grade, was on life support. It's the week of my wedding, and I spent three or four nights, I cannot remember, at the hospital with that family, sleeping in the waiting room, really trying to take care of the 16-year-old because he, his, his father had left some years earlier. The day I left for my wedding was the day that they took the fifth-grade boy off of life support. They held his funeral while we were on our honeymoon. That passing shook that congregation greatly. And I was only three or four months into ministry. And then September came. Remember, I was hired February of 04. September comes. And Hurricane Ivan decides to show up in Pensacola. I don't know how many of you have ever been through a hurricane. I don't recommend it. Sarah and I had never experienced one. And Hurricane Ivan made landfall between Gulf Shores and Pensacola as a high Category 3 storm. Listen, if it ever gets to Category 3, I don't stick around anymore. We went and stayed with our youth deacon because... We didn't know what we were doing. We just knew there was a storm coming, and we needed to be somewhere safe. So we stayed with our, our youth deacon. The storm hit during the night, and I can still remember being inside of a house, and I can remember the sound of trees falling down outside and wondering if that snap is a tree coming at you in the house. We woke up the next morning, and there was a large oak tree outside the room that we were sleeping in. And it happened to fall the opposite direction of the way we were, where we were sleeping. Otherwise, it could have fallen on us. I can still remember being in that house. And I don't know how this is possible, but I could feel the wind coming through the walls. 
I still don't know how that was possible, but I could feel the wind. I, could, I would walk up to the wall, put my hand on the wall, and I could feel the wind. It was an experience I don't want to ever have again. I don't imagine that many of you remember Hurricane Ivan, but at the time it was the second costliest hurricane in American history. It wiped out the Interstate 10 bridge. There's an amazing photo of an 18-wheeler sitting on that bridge. The cab was in the bay beneath it, though. And the driver of that 18-wheeler perished because he drove across it during the storm, and the storm had wiped out sections of the bridge without anybody knowing. For the next two or three months, I didn't do youth ministry. I did disaster assistance relief. Distributing food boxes from Churches of Christ disaster relief. Helping clean up people's yards all around town. Day in, day out, every day of the week, basically, three or four months. That was my introduction to ministry. That was my first year of work. Two tragic losses in the church and one major natural disaster. And I remember thinking, this isn't easy. This ministry thing is not like I thought it would be. This is not what I anticipated when I signed up for this. And I imagine when Elijah got to Zarephath, he might have been thinking the same thing. Because facing such difficulties, especially when something is just beginning, whether it be a marriage, a job, parenthood, a new ministry, it can, those difficulties can be daunting, discouraging, and even dangerous to our faith. That's because we tend to interpret difficulty as an indicator that we're doing something outside of God's will. We sometimes think to ourselves that this is going so poorly that it must be a mistake. But the truth is that such difficulty is often a part of God's plan because He can use it to mold us. He can use it to shape us. He can use it to ready us for something bigger and better. That's why passages like Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 instructs us to rejoice in our sufferings. And James chapter 1 and verse 2 instructs us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. And 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 instructs us to rejoice even though we have been grieved by various trials. And the point all of these passages are making is that difficulty can breed great things. So God occasionally orders the difficulty test because this test reveals the depth of our faith. It reveals whether our faith is shallow or whether our faith is deep, whether we have faith that quits or we have faith that endures, whether we have faith that trusts God or trusts ourselves instead. The difficulty test is not easy, but it can be beneficial. And sometimes God is going to order the difficulty test. And sometimes He's going to order the worry test. The fourth and final test that God ordered for Elijah was this test. Look at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 13 through 16. And Elijah said to the widow, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. 
but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So under direct orders from God, Elijah goes to Zarephath to be cared for by a widow, and when he gets there, he discovers that this widow doesn't even have enough food to take care of herself and her son. Why would God send him to someone who doesn't have the ability to provide for his care? I think it's because God wanted to see if Elijah had learned anything from his experience in the wilderness. When Elijah was surviving in the wilderness, he had to trust the provider, not the provision. He had to trust that God would send the birds in the morning and send the birds in the evening. He had to trust that God would provide enough water in that brook and that when that brook dried up, he had to trust that God would lead him to a new source of sustenance. That whole experience in the wilderness was ultimately designed to teach Elijah that it wasn't food and water keeping him alive. It was God. And so when he got to Zarephath, God orders a test that will demonstrate whether or not he learned that lesson. Will Elijah trust that God can sustain this widow, her son, and Elijah, even though the cupboards are empty? Or will he worry about what to do next? And Elijah passes the test. He doesn't worry. He doesn't fret. He doesn't cry out to God in anger when he finds out that she doesn't have food. He doesn't lament his precarious situation when he finds out that she doesn't have any food. He simply acts on faith, trusting that God will do the rest. You see, if I were in Elijah's shoes, it would have been easy for me to succumb to worry. Because I have a tendency to forget who the provider is. Oftentimes, by the way we act or the way we speak, we reveal that we think the job is the source of our provisions. Or we think the stock market is the source of our provisions. Or we think that the person in the White House is the source of our provisions. And so I think sometimes God orders the worry test to teach us who the source of our provisions really is. Let's not forget what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus' key point in this passage is that worry is a godless trait. Jesus, in effect, says that pagans, unbelievers, non-Christians, those who would be classified as the world, they have reason to worry, but Christians do not. Because as the old hymn says, they know who holds the future. So the point Jesus is making is that worry makes you act like someone who doesn't believe in God. And here's how. 
Atheists claim that there is no God. They deny His existence and function based on the mindset that there is no supreme being to help them through this life. And as a result, they believe that they are all alone to face the hardships of life. Worriers claim there is a God, but act like He doesn't exist. Unlike atheists, worriers may believe in God. However, like atheists, Warriors function with the mindset that there is no supreme being to help them with this life, and as a result, they act as though they are all alone to face the hardships of life. So Jesus is saying that you have a Father who knows what you need. Therefore, you don't need to worry like the world worries. You just need to trust the provider. And every day, Elijah, the widow, and her son, they gathered around that table, and they witnessed a miracle. Because they never ran out of food. And they were the benefactors of God's benevolence in this moment because they trusted instead of worried. See, sometimes God orders that worry test. He orders that test to see if we really trust Him or if we trust something else. came across this illustration as the Union Pacific Railroad was being constructed. There was this elaborate trestle bridge built across a large canyon out in the west. And they wanted to test the bridge. So the builder loaded a train with enough extra cars and equipment to double its normal payload. The train was then driven out to the middle of the bridge where it stayed for an entire day. And one of the workers asked, are you trying to break this bridge? And the builder replied, no, I'm trying to prove that it won't break. The point is that all too often we look at tests like they are trying to break us, but maybe, just maybe, our tests are God's way of proving that we can't be broken. Isn't that, isn't that why he allowed Job to be tested? To prove that Job was a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And so this morning, as we consider the tests that Elijah had to take and how those tests might manifest themselves in our lives today, I want you to consider these two possibilities. The next time you're facing a test, maybe like Elijah, God is allowing you to be tested because he wants to advance your spiritual education. Or maybe like Job, God is allowing you to be tested because he knows you won't break. Tests aren't easy. but they are useful. And Elijah endured his fair share of tests as God continued his education. And there's no reason for us to think that God won't do the same with us. The question is, are you going to be prepared the next time you face a test? Such preparation begins right here 
right now. Maybe for you that preparation, that preparation requires you to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, to repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins so that you, you can start life as a child of God. Maybe that's the preparation that you need today. Or maybe for you, you are a child of God, but you've lost your way somehow. You've stopped trusting Him. You've started worrying. You've stopped leaning on Him. You've stopped listening to Him. Or you stopped following His directions. Maybe right now, you need to turn things around. Maybe that's the preparation you need. I don't know what the specific preparation you need in your life is today, but I know that right now we have the opportunity to fulfill that. And if you have any need to respond to the invitation, we want to invite you to come while together we stand and sing this song.